And ultimately, I'll argue no. Um, okay, so it's a challenging, this is a challenging area to work on. As I said, um, you have, for lawyers in particular, for lawyers, for instance, if you look at migrants, we do it through labour law, we do it through immigration law. When it comes to benefits or, you know, services, we do it through social security law. Um, here in Europe, we really do it through EU law, to a greater or lesser extent, especially with EEA, uh, people from the EEA. So, but it is an area in which international human rights law hasn't really engaged. And part of it has been because, well, why would we do it? Because the labour rights lawyers are doing it. Or this is an immigration issue. It's much more controversial than the safe national human rights issues that we prefer to look at. So there is a gap. The other thing that obviously um, that proves a challenge for human rights lawyers in terms of conceptions, conception, is the fact that the human rights conception of migrant rights or of migration policy differs very strongly from other frequently more dominant forces that influence or underpin migration policy. And we have a tendency not to really, you know, in asserting that human rights should be at the forefront, we have a tendency to ignore these other factors, which makes it hard for our arguments sometimes to be convincing. And that is a serious shortcoming. And it's something you may actually catch me doing at the end. And I'd welcome comments on that. But we have this obvious, and you will know this so much you know, better than me, but you have this, with international human rights law, we have this fundamental concern with human dignity, right? The preambles, the opening part of the treaties that set out international human rights standards, all of these refer to the human dignity, the human person. So it's very much focused on the individual human person and ensuring their dignity. In contrast, you obviously have, with regards to migration policy, you have the economic market forces, which you know, very much regard economic migrants as economic assets, or you know, not. You have sovereignty concerns with regards to border control that's present in international law. And at the domestic level, you have security concerns, uh, particularly post-September the 11th, with regard to migrants as a potential threat to law and order. You also have, which isn't on the slide, these you know, political discourse at the domestic level that is often very contrary to the human rights principle, that certainly isn't focused on the dignity of migrants as such. The other challenge that we have um, for focusing on this is that we need to bear in mind is that states, regardless of what we would like them to do, still employ citizenship and immigration status as a key grounds for differentiation between human persons and their jurisdiction with regards to goods and access to services. We mightn't think they should, and some of the law I'm going to talk about today says you shouldn't, but let's not kid ourselves, in practice this is happening. And in part, this feeds back to the weakness in terms of enforcing these international human rights standards, which I'll talk about later. And you do have, for instance, regardless of what we might hope, in the context of international human rights law itself, we still see an understanding of citizenship that's very much based on nationality. So both at the international human rights law level and at the domestic level. And I'm very, I was very interested, um, Sarah very kindly referred me to, um, probably mispronouncing that, Soisel, Soisel's work. And this notion, I mean, I mean and it's, it's inspiring what she's saying, that she argues that we're moving towards this universal concept of citizenship whose organizing and legitimating principles are based on universal personhood rather than national belonging. And certainly with IH, international human rights, where we're focusing on human dignity and we're meant to be ignoring nationality and immigration status at a fundamental level, there is a shift towards this. 
But it's nowhere near as strong as Soisel certainly appeared to hope it would be when she wrote in 1994. So, and also, it's very the notion of moving towards nationality-based models, moving away from nationality-based models of citizenship. You know that she she makes great reference in her work to human rights. You know the impact of human rights on notions of citizenship. However, it, human rights has had impact on notions of citizenship, for instance, in Europe. And then we have the impact of the EU and the other. But, it's, but those claims with regards to the impact of international human rights certainly don't apply to other regions of the world in the same way. For instance, Asia and the Middle East, where there's a very different approach towards human rights standards. So what I'm saying is not that Soisel is wrong, but that it's, she, she overstates, or in fact, perhaps she was overly optimistic. The, the one thing that I, starting off, from a human rights perspective, right, and I'm, you know, ultimately I'm coming at this as a human rights lawyer, the area of migrant rights actually demonstrates the shortcomings of the whole human rights regime when dealing with the other, right? And as you will, I'm sure you'll be aware, the modern international human rights legal regime, right, came into, you know, existence post-World War II, right? It was a response to the Holocaust, the other you know, appalling atrocities of war. And it, on that basis, we can very much conceptualize international human rights law as being concerned with protecting the other, particularly the political, politically or socially marginalized other. There is a clear concern that what, you know, what happened in the Holocaust where people were taken as, treated as the other for a range of you know, different purposes and denial of rights protection. So this, this was one of the underlying concerns. However, international human rights law, like many, many areas of law, is very, very much a creation of its creators as such. It is a very clear Western liberal bias. Right? It is clearly influenced, even though a huge number of states got together and negotiated on the standards, there is a very clear Western liberal, liberal male bias. It has been criticised by commentators like Charlesworth for its complete failure to engage with women. You know, up until relatively, up until say, relatively recently, or it's, and it's, it's ongoing inadequate engagement with women's women's experiences and needs. The same was true until relatively recently of, with regards to disability, and Quinn has done work on this. So what I'm saying is, migrants are not alone in having been treated, you know. Ignored to some degree by the international human rights law framework. However, whereas with women and with people with disabilities and with children, we've seen serious strides forwards in order to incorporate them and mainstream them in the international human rights law framework, we still have this ongoing blind spot with regards to migrants. So, this is even though there's an identified problem we still have this blind spot in a way that we don't have with other groups. And that's particularly true of the undocumented migrant, the person who doesn't necessarily have legal status, doesn't have legal status in a country. Before I move on, I just want to very quickly highlight, I know that definitions of migrants bound, right? I want to make it very clear, I'm not talking about refugees, right? Um, there is a very clear human rights regime for refugees. It's relatively well enforced. It's relatively uncontroversial. A lot more states have ratified the relevant refuge, have um, 
voluntarily assume the obligations imposed by international human rights for refugees than they have from, say, migrant workers. So we need to be aware that I'm not talking about, say, refugee or asylum issues. So what I'm going to do is just give you a few uh, very, very brief clips of how it's perceived by human rights actors, right? So you have this UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights who has highlighted in her report that specifically looks, right, this is a report that she gives to the UN bodies, right, so the kind of the UN, the international parliament, as it were, gives this, gives this report, and she's specifically looking at the human rights-based responses to the economic and financial crises, right? And in that report, she singles out migrants as being endure, one of the groups that endure the gravest effects of the crises, and she highlights that the ingrained discrimination and structural disadvantage <coughs> means that migrants have restricted access to services and social protection. So what's very clear there is, she says, with regards to migrants, that it isn't just the impact of the global economic crisis, it's the underlying problem of you know, the fact that migrants were already subject to systemic discrimination and structural disadvantage. And in terms of you know, what we're seeing with regards to migrants, you know, I know it's, it's very, very early on to still really gauge the impact of the economic crisis on migration patterns, migration policy, etc. But, I mean, I'm relying on the IOM's 2011 report, for instance, and they highlight um, the increased joblessness amongst migrants, right? And this is what's very important to recognise is that international human rights law doesn't say the state has to do everything. It's completely recognised that if I can satisfy my right to housing, I go out and I satisfy my right to housing. It's not that the state, you know, gives me gives me. If I am, you know, able to go out there work and earn money, I buy my own house. So what we're seeing is that by due to this drop in employment, we're seeing that migrants are having a harder time meeting their needs, their access to goods and services rights themselves. Right? They're less likely to be paying into, you know, likely to be paying into pensions. They're less likely to be able to pay their rent or enter into, you know, pri uh, private tenancy agreements, um, and they're less likely to be able to pay for private healthcare, which is the dominant form, say, of healthcare delivery in Ireland, for instance, where I'm from. So, first of all, you joblessness, but then in addition to this, we have these cuts to specific cuts to specific benefits and services that are part of the post-crisis austerity agendas in many countries, and. This further reduces the access of migrants to, to goods and services. So we have this kind of double whammy, where you have, first of all, you're losing your job, so you're less able to meet your rights needs yourselves. And second of all, they're cutting mechanisms by which the state can help you or provide those, those rights needs. So it's a, you know, it's, a very it's a very serious issue. The other thing I just want to highlight that the IOM has highlighted is this hardening of public attitudes towards immigrants that seems to have followed on from the economic crisis, right? perhaps unsurprisingly. And this reinforces the notion at the domestic level of the migrants of other, as other. right? So it's not just international human rights law regarding migrants as other, or international law or states. It's also amongst you know, the polity, society, etc. So where are we now? I want us to quickly move on to, I'm now going to get on to the rather dry uh, legal bit. I'm going to start by talking about how human rights law deals with access to goods and services generally, right? So this is how it applies to everyone, not just migrants. And there's three key engines, right? 
First of all, we have economic and social rights protection. So those are rights to housing, to health, to education. Second, we have civil and political rights, so the right to a fair trial, the right to life. You know, for instance, if you have a social security benefit, there's the, the step case with the European Convention, you may be able to argue that you're entitled to fair process under the right to a fair trial under, for instance, the European Convention of Human Rights. Actually, and at that point I should highlight, I'm only talking about the international regimes. I'm very, very happy later on to talk about the Inter-American, the European Convention, and the European Social Charter Systems, all of which are relevant to this, but because of time, I'm, I'm not making them part of the presentation. But I think uh, someone who was at a previous seminar said you discussed the Limbuela case. And this is the destitution case in which it was held that for the state to um, fail to provide adequate support to uh, the persons in question, um, you had a situation in which they fell into a state of destitution that was a violation of their right to freedom from an inhuman degrading treatment. So this idea that there's a minimum level of civil and political rights that can be used to protect. And finally, there's the issue of equality rights. And you know, this is the idea very much focused on, say, whether it's discrimination on nationality, whether it's discrimination on the basis of immigration status. And is anyone familiar with the Kozak case, the South African example? Okay, this is a case that involved um, a group of Mozambican nationals who were permanent residents in South Africa. Right, so permanent residents that were fully, legal, fully legalized, as it were. And they, there were provisions under the South African, essentially, Social Security Code that said it was harder. You were not entitled to certain benefits, whether old age, whether um, child support, and, your, and your children weren't entitled to certain child benefits if you weren't a national, if you weren't a citizen. And the court, the constitutional court, dealt with this case. Now, there's, if you think about the fact that at the moment a fifth of the Zimbabwean population lives within South African borders, a statistic that we all hear all the time, this is a huge financial repercussion for this decision to say that you're giving it to permanent residents, you know, who are an ever-growing group. And the court turned around and said that you couldn't; it wasn't reasonable to deny those rights. That it was a, it would have been a violation of the uh, provision against unfair the protection against unfair discrimination under the Constitution. So those are the different ways that rights can operate to give effect. But today we're going to look at key, this crucial, this international covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. Okay, now you're going to have to excuse me if this is, you know, stuff you know already. International law, as you will know, is not directly binding, for instance, in the UK. It is in other countries, for instance, if you have a monist system, if you're, if you're for instance, in La if you're in Argentina, if you're in Colombia, if you're in Venezuela, they have constitutional frameworks that say specifically that where the state ratifies, where the state signs up to a treaty, then it automatically becomes part of domestic law. You can rely on it in the courts. Obviously, in the and in the majority of countries with Anglo-American tradition, um, you have a dualist system, which means that if you sign up to an international treaty, you are saying, we will give effect to the rights, but I can't go to court and say, well, actually, you violated my right under such and such. So, for instance, in the UK, you're allowed to bring a complaint about a violation of the ECHR because we have a domestic piece of legislation that makes it part of our law. You can't do that with ICESC. Sorry, which is the, the acronym for this covenant. Is that, does that make sense? That there, you don't have a direct remedy just because you can't go to a court 
simply because a state has ratified or you know, has signed up voluntarily assumed obligations under international law. Now, this is, I promise, the only slide with the incredibly horrific legal wording for which you know, lawyers are proud. But it's very important because if you look at the way that civil and political rights are given effect to an international human rights law, they're phrased in terms of, you know, the state must, give a, must protect the right to life. The state, um, everyone has the right to freedom from, freedom from torture, right? These are immediate, immediate obligations. So let's look at what Sesker says about the, the rights it includes, like the right to adequate housing, right to health, right to social security. And here we see each state party to the present covenant undertakes to take steps, right? Individually and through international assistance cooperation, especially economic and technical, to the maximum of its available resources, right? So the state has to take, has to take the maximum steps it can with regard making use of the maximum of the resources it has available to it, right? And this is a big deal. It's not just about what the state chooses to pay on health, it's how much the state want, can pay on health, right? It may involve looking at questions of taxation, macroeconomic decision-making, whatever. But it's about that if the state has the money, it has to use it to give effect to these rights. The second thing is, and the state has to use the maximum of its available resources with a view to achieving progressively the full realisation of the rights. Now, this is something called progressive realisation. And for a very long time it was argued that because this was in the covenant, it, it really meant nothing. That actually it was clear, when we talk about progressively realising, that means that we can do it over time, we can do a little bit, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a pragmatic device that recognises that states can't do it immediately, you know, don't have the money or the resources to give effect to, say, the right to health of everyone in the country all at once. Right? And then they'd be like, oh, but it means, unlike civil and political rights, where you have to do everything straight away. Now, obviously, those of us who you know, live in a country where we have domestic civil and political rights protection will be very aware that just because something is on the books doesn't mean that it gets given effect to right away. The other thing we need to be aware of is that this language was very carefully included. And the argument was that you can't expect complete, you can't expect Ma Mali, you can't expect Malawi, you can't expect, certainly in the current environment, you know, Ireland, to fully give, to give effect to all the rights under the covenant to everyone, all at once. It's not practical. So this is, this is a, this is a, this is kind of a, it's a call, this means the state, it's not that the state can't do anything, the state has to progressively realise with the aim of fully realising the rights at the end of the day. It has to keep moving forward, like a ratchet effect, right? So, for instance, if I'm going, if it's going up and the state suddenly, you know, hits a crisis, it can't just go down to the bottom. It has to, you have to, you have to stay stationary. You have to keep moving forward. Progressive realization refers to progress and actual enjoyment of rights. So, for instance, if I was a government and governments do this a lot, and they say we're throwing an extra ten percent at education this year, but in fact, where the money is going or how it's being spent, you know, maybe it just compensates for inflation. That isn't increasing enjoyment of rights. Right? It's all about whether we see real progress in actual enjoyment. The state has to show that it is moving as expeditiously and effective as effectively as possible. That means the state can't sit back and go, oh, you know, we've done a national plan, and yeah, well, we'll see how, and maybe in five years' time we'll do this, and we think we'll allocate some money in two years, and 
maybe then we'll have a policy. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that the state has to go, you know, as effectively and as quickly as it can. And crucially, and very importantly in the time of economic crisis, where we're being told to batten down the hatchets and the state has no money, etc., it prohibits steps backwards. It prohibits these retrogressive, what we call retrogressive measures, because lawyers couldn't possibly have said steps backwards seems that would be far too clear. But other than in very limited circumstances, right? So again, it accepts there are going to be times if you have a natural disaster or if you have a complete breakdown in your finances where you're going to have to you know, reduce spending on health or reduce spending on social security and that's going to reduce rights enjoyment. However, you could only do this in some circumstances. You could only do it if you carefully looked at all of the rights under the covenant, right? So you have to prove that this is absolutely necessary and that it's in the context of the full use of maximum available resources. So you can't say, well, actually, we have the money, but what we're doing is we're holding on to this money for next year, or we're holding on to this money for defence, for instance. Um, and, you know, sorry, so we're holding on to this for defence purposes because that isn't using maximum available resources. The other thing we're, we're looking at then is there's some immediate obligations that ISESCA imposes that I want to talk about. One of these is the minimum core. And this is the idea that the state has to provide a minimum essential level necessary for survival, right? Because if you think about, if the obligation is on the state just to progressively realise, right? Well, that means that in 10 years' time, you mightn't be doing much better than you're doing now. But the argument with the minimum core is that there's an absolute, there's a threshold for every right below which every state cannot go, you know, or, you know, should not be going. And it's a minimum essential level necessary for survival. And for instance, in the context of healthcare, it's the it's essential primary healthcare services. The state must provide those. And if it can't, it must prove that it has tried to provide those and that it is prioritising the most vulnerable. Right? And migrants will qualify as amongst the most vulnerable. I'm not going to this is if you're utterly inspired, go off and take a look at this case, but this is somewhere where where a domestic court uh, applied a very similar principle. Now Icester. This is an immediate obligation, right? Article 2.2 of Icester says that there mustn't be discrimination on the grounds of sex, race, colour, uh, sex, race, colour, and a whole range, national or social origin, birth, etc. And this is what's important to note is that while states can, you know, take time, and it's understood they may take time, to ensure that everyone enjoys the right to health, they have to immediately ensure that there's no discrimination in the right to health. This is an immediate obligation. And if you say, look at the work, um, if you look at, say, the work that a lot of people do in the right to health, this, this is the only obligation they have to look at, for instance, if they do urban or rural differentials in health, male and female, etc., etc. However, even though you have this general prohibition on non-discrimination, right, the statement that you cannot discriminate with regards to enjoyment of covenant rights, it doesn't say anything about nationality or citizenship or immigration status. It doesn't say there can be no discrimination on the basis of nationality. There can be no discrimination on the basis of immigration status. It does say, you know, race, colour, sex, and other status. And it puts in other status because obviously they don't want to have you don't want to have a non-discrimination clause which is closed. You don't want to have someone to turn around and say, for instance, Disability isn't under Article 2.2, where they go, well, actually, I have a disability, and they go, yeah, we didn't think about you in 1966, so we're afraid you're not going to benefit now in 2000, you know, 2012. 
And that's, so you have this other status where other grounds can be fitted in underneath. And the question is, does nationality come under there? Does immigration status? And I'll come back to that. Looking at other covenants, right, because we're talking about access to goods and services. Article 5 of CERD, right, so this is very much focused on racial discrimination. The state has to enjoy the right of everyone without distinction as to race, etc., um, with regard to the enjoyment of economic, social, and cultural rights. So we're not just looking at ICESCAR, we're looking at CERD. And the vast majority of countries have ratified one, other, or both of these, right? They have voluntarily agreed to be bound by them. And this looks great. I mean, be, you know, we're like fantastic, there's reference to goods and services, etc. But it isn't all good news, as we will see in a minute. And then we have. You have the Migrant Workers' Convention. And when I was taught um, the Migrant Workers' Convention years and years and years and years ago, I was taught by uh, Philip Olson, who's one of the leading human rights scholars. And he took one look and he said, God, it's a beautiful convention. It's perfect. And that's part of its problem. That really, it's, it's, as I'll talk in a minute, it's a convention that was negotiated very effectively by sending states and by migrant rights advocates and did not... Have, and, and it is arguable then it is very difficult for receiving states to sign it because it really because of the level of benefit and right it accords, it accords. But we'll come back to that. So what do we see with migrant workers? Crucially, we see that actually it is explicitly recognised that undocumented migrant workers also have rights. There's a whole part that is assigned to rights that all migrant workers, sorry, and their families share. So in other words, your status regular or irregular, doesn't matter for those rights. And these include the right to the same treatment with respect to social security, rights to nationals, insofar as they fulfil the requirements provided by the applicable law, right to receive any medical care urgently required for their preservation of their lives, or the avoidance of irreparable harm to their health on the basis of equality of treatment. And then you have the right to uh, basic right of access to education of children of migrant workers, right? This is... Uh, on the one hand, this is fantastic because we have an explicit recognition that even if you're undocumented, you have these rights. But what we need to note is that these are much lower levels of rights enjoyment than we see under, for instance, ICESCAR. Well, I won't go back, actually. ICESCAR, who, which provides rights to everyone. Right? They talk, ICESCAR isn't concerned with... Um, isn't concerned with basic right of access to education. It isn't concerned with only life-saving medical care. It's concerned with vaccination. It's concerned with you know, talking therapy. It's concerned with a holistic understanding of health. But here we see a much narrower right that is strong because it's expressly guaranteed to migrant workers, but doesn't actually guarantee very much. And then, in addition to these rather limited rights, we see documented or regularised workers enjoying additional rights to goods and services, right? So if you're legal, you have an infinitely, you know, you have a much broader range of enjoyment, much closer to what's set out under ICESCAR. And I, you know, I cannot emphasise enough what a sea change this was, that you would have explicit recognition, you know, that you have in the Migrant Workers Convention, in Article 7, you have a recognition you have a statement that you can't, in an actual convention, that you cannot discriminate on the grounds of nationality. You didn't have that before. Now, there's no mention of immigration status, because that would really put the cats amongst the pigeons, but it says you cannot discriminate on that basis. And this is a massive step, and it's 1990. 
and it took a much and it was you know wasn't enforced until like 2003 and you know that shows how slow it was in terms of being uh, to explain that to come into a force a treaty has to be agreed to by a certain minimum number of signatories state signatories normally about you know say 15 or so so that gives you a sense of the um convention of rights of child for instance came into force in a year 13 years later this wasn't in, in place so you can see the difference so what are the key obstacles to migrants' enjoyment of goods and services under IHR? Well, first of all, there's a problem of human rights bodies to mainstream migrants adequately into general human rights standards. Okay? So it's great. Oh, we have our Migrant Workers Convention, you know, and that does all the work. We need, ne- you know, there has been an attitude historically that this is a really sticky area. So if I'm, for instance, a UN body that monitors another one of the inter- international covenants, you know, one of the bodies that oversees how states are giving effect to it, I might just go, you know, I think I'll look at children, I think I'll maybe look at people with disabilities, because these are slightly more, less frightening groups, right? And there has been a failure to mainstream migrants. And then, when you have the Migrant Workers Convention, there is an element of, well, so few states have ratified it, and if we talk about migrants in our general commons, we're opening ourselves up for trouble. So there's kind of the, the need to keep states on side. So what you have now, it's arguable, is that we have this Migrant Workers Convention, but in fact we see the separate and unequal, because very few states have ratified it, etc. Whereas the other general, uh, general human rights standards haven't been extended to cover migrant workers or interpreted as far as they could be. Okay, the other major problem we have is that we don't just have a favour to mainstream, we also have explicit exclusions of non-citizens from rights protection. So we have Article 2.3 of the International Covenant that says developing countries can determine to what extent they'll guarantee the economic rights in the covenant to non-nationals, so for instance the right to work. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, you know, irrelevant in you know developed countries and many welfare states, but this, you know, could be a huge get out of free clause for, for, for countries that are still developing. But what's notable, and this is what's interesting, that even though in the treaty you have this explicit exclusion, you have a statement that says, you know, you have a statement, you have the committee that monitors that treaty, that interprets it, saying, well, actually, we're going to ignore this. They never talked about it. And then their general, in a statement on non-discrimination, they say the covenant rights apply to everyone, including non-nationals, such as refugees, asylum seekers, stateless persons, migrant workers, victims of trafficking, regardless of legal status and documentation. Now, that's a fantastic statement. It is by far the biggest statement that you have from one of the UN treaty monitoring bodies. What's worrying, though, is which we'll come back to, is that that's not in the treaty itself, whereas Article 2.3 is. We also see Article 1.2, third, right? So this was the one that said, you know, we can't have racial discrimination with regards to... Uh, with economic, social and cultural rights. And here we have an explicit statement saying this convention won't apply to, dis- you know, to distinctions, exclusions or restrictions on made uh, by state parties between citizens and non-citizens, right? So here we have another get out of free clause, essentially. It's a bit like, oh, we don't like racial discrimination. On the other hand, we have no real problem in terms of the treaty with discri- discrimination on the basis of, of citizenship. Now, on the one hand, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, does it really matter? Frequently, you know, if, if you're talking about discrimination on the basis of citizenship, so often this is also on the basis of race or ethnicity, etc. 
But actually, yes, it, you know, it matters an awful lot because at the end of the day, this is something within the wording of the treaty itself. That means it shouldn't, in theory, apply to, citizen, uh, to non-citizens. However, we, again, we see, just as we saw in the, with the committee that monitors ICESCAR, we saw the committee say, oh, well, actually, the, the, the rights do apply regardless of nationality or immigration status. Here we see the committee that monitors the third convention saying that differential treatment on citizenship will con- can constitute discrimination, and they give a test. But what's important is that even if we look back, right, to one, that is absolutely crystal clear, right? You can differentiate between citizens and non-citizens. Here it's saying differential treatment will be discrimination in certain cases, and that's very clearly above and beyond what the treaty says. And on the one hand, that's absolutely fantastic, and we want to see monitoring bodies saying that, because these are very important, influential statements, right? But they're not binding, right? When these committees say something, it's not like it's written in a treaty. That is soft law. What is written in a treaty is hard law. And whereas hard law is binding on states, soft law isn't. And an example of how this can work is that, from a domestic example, is that a few years ago a case was brought in Northern Ireland seeking to criminalise the smacking of children. And there was a very clear... uh, Parental physical punishment isn't actually banned by the CRC in as many words, right? It's very clearly banned by the whole sense of the convention, but there is no, you will not physically punish your children if you are parents' permission. And the court in that case said, well, I want to go along with what the convention says. And I note that the committee that monitors that convention has said that corporal punishment is a violation of the convention, right? So you had the equivalent of these statements in status. And they said, but that's not what the UK signed up to. It's not written in the convention. So even though, what I want to highlight is that even though these statements are great, states can legitimately say, well, actually, they're not hard law. They're not part of what we signed up to. I'm actually going to stick with Article 1, 2 in my policy making. Thank you very much. And the final thing we have, we think about, is the Migrant Workers Convention, right? It's been called the G77 Treaty because you don't see the major, certainly receiving states, ratifying it. There's a lot of debate about why it hasn't been ratified. You know, low awareness, misperceptions. It's been argued that NGO groups didn't campaign effectively or hard enough. There's complaints about the content of the treaty. It's argued that if the state was to give effect, was to implement it domestically, there'd be too much administrative or financial in terms of burdens. And there's all sorts of stuff based in domestic politics. In Europe, there's a European alibi, which is I can't ratify it because none of the other European states have ratified it. So it's you know messes around with EU, you know, internal markets and free movement of persons. But ultimately, that actually doesn't matter, right? Because we could argue about this till the cows come home. And there are many, you know, migration law scholars who have made this their life's work, and you know, fine work it is too. But what I want to highlight is just that we're seeing very low levels of ratification. And ultimately, if this is, you know, the be-all and the end-all of migrant workers' conventions, if we haven't one significant receiving state that's ratified that, then it is arguably a very limited use. Now, other things, and this is more serious with the Migrant Workers Convention, which again, you know, is meant to be the kind of the pearl and the crown. First of all, it's argued that actually, well, the Migrant Workers Convention, oh, it's very nice, but it talks about, but it's not really engaging with the on the ground issues faced by NGOs. The Migrant Workers Convention talks about the state, but if we look at how migration works, it's more and more of a privatized process. 
You know, so why are we focused on the state all the time when in fact we really need to engage with private actors, which international human rights law does very badly. It doesn't deal with the feminization of migrant labor. And it's a huge issue because it, you know, there is no mention of domestic workers in the Migrant Workers Convention, which obviously is a huge concern to people doing work with regards to frequently women domestic workers. And contrast, for instance, with, say, uh, something that the Women's Convention Committee has done on women migrant workers, but they were largely ignored. With the increasing short-term nature of labour migration, uh, linked to expansion more flexible employment in certain sectors and its inherent precariousness, which the Migrant Workers Convention again doesn't deal with. And the other problem is that if you're trying to assert your rights, you have to stand up and say you're asserting your rights. And if you're a regular migrant, what is the likelihood that you're going to expose yourself to that level of attention to make use of the legal protection that may or may not apply? So this is a huge issue. It's great to have the law, but who, who's going to stand up and do that? Now, I'm going to finish with this comment. Now, this element. So should, you know, having said all that, having, you know, been fairly blisteringly cynical about or, well, critical of the extent to which human rights, you know, engages with migrant workers, should we just turn away completely? Now, and I would argue very strongly that we should not. And with regards to, one of the things I talk about is that, first of all, international human rights is a really important, powerful, rallying rhetoric, right? People know what human rights is. And ultimately, even if states ignore them, they are international legal obligations. When we're dealing with rights, we're not talking about, you know, when we're dealing with rights, we're talking about a discourse that people recognise. With regards to the shortcomings I've identified, so the fail, failure to take into account the feminisation of migrant labour, we do see an awareness of the gaps, right? For instance, the first statement that the committee that monitors the Migrant Workers Conventions made was on domestic workers. We have the new ILO Convention on domestic workers. So it is possible to fill the gaps. Also, in, in, what I would like to say as well is that rights are entitlements, right? That means that you have a situation in which they are something that people have a claim to. They are not something that is given by a generous state depending on your economic or social benefit you accord to that state. So in other words, it's not a state-centric. Rights aren't state-centric. I mean, they involve a state in a relationship. But it isn't about benefits of the right to the state. It is about rights because they are accorded to persons because of their status, which they can claim against the state. And the other thing is, this, and that obviously differentiates them from the benefits that governments may choose, may choose to accord migrants at a particular time. And I think it's particularly important now, given the economic crisis, the fact that we are seeing this winding back of goods and services, for every, rights of access to goods and services to everyone, and this hardening of attitude towards migrants, you know, that the state is reminded this is something it owes, not just something that it can do when it wants. And what I would say, just to finish though, is despite the fact that I'd argue that it brings us beyond these pragmatic reasons, and it's, you know, it's great because it's focused on human dignity, we need to be very aware, and I would never argue, and no human rights lawyer worth their salt would argue, that making, making you know, migrant issues or migrant policy issues ones of human rights, just designating them as that, solves absolutely no problems at all. However, what human rights, it's no use as a labelling thing, because that doesn't get us anywhere. However, as a tool and as an advocacy language, it's very hard, particularly at the international level, to think of another one that is likely to be as strong and as effective and as centred at the people who are themselves the subject of migration policy.